0: This episode looks at forced labour. You've survived the nuclear war. You're really quite tired by the whole thing. So can the government come knocking to hand you a mask, a shovel, a pair of wellies and a basket and force you to go out there to work in a radioactive hellhole? When it's half three in the morning, too late to sleep, too soon to rise, as the Pet Shop Boys said, and I can't sleep. I often imagine life after a nuclear war. I don't intend to. I would prefer to try and count sheep, or maybe draw up a shopping list in my head, but obviously, I can't help going into the world of the nuclear holocaust, asking what it would be like. Well, I'd be alone, wouldn't I? That's the nightmare scenario. That's the one always portrayed in films, certainly, the survivor stumbling through the ash and the rubble alone. Everyone's gone, everything familiar is gone. There will never again be such humdrum yet wonderful things as bubble baths, tea and ginger nuts, or falling asleep in your own bed. It's just you now, in the cold and in the dark, walking across the rubble trying to find something to eat or drink. There's certainly no one to speak to, no one to be comforted by. In my imagination, certainly, I am always that lone figure. But why do I think that? Why is that how we imagine it? Is it because our imaginations, in trying to conjure up that most awful of fates, quite naturally revert to childhood terrors? And surely the worst terror as a child was being abandoned, being left alone in the dark? But would you be alone after a nuclear war? Obviously it depends on a multitude of factors, blah blah blah, but you probably wouldn't be alone. You wouldn't be a lone figure in a swirl of fallout, no matter what Hollywood tells you. You might actually hope to be alone, as your fellow survivors might pose a far greater threat to you than fire or starvation or disease, but you probably wouldn't be alone. Most war games and projections of a nuclear attack on the UK, even a full nuclear war, always leave us with millions of survivors. Of course that's millions just after the attack. We can expect that figure to quickly dwindle thanks to nuclear winter, starvation, anarchy, lawlessness, disease, etc. But the chances are you'd be sharing ruined Britain with a few million others. Hip, hip, hip. So what are those millions of survivors doing? We know that most of them will have no home, no family, no job. Nothing which ties them any longer to a set, predictable life in a fixed place. So, with all those things cut away, what are these people doing? Just milling about? Curled up in a ball crying? Bartering for rats in a carrier bag? As we see Ruth do in the film threads? Seriously though, in the midst of all that chaos and destruction, what are the survivors doing? The podcast will try to answer that today, And as you know, the answer ain't going to be pretty. I'm going to show you some papers I found in the National Archives which show the Home Office was planning to round up the survivors and force them to work. first we need to ask how do you force people to do anything in a post nuclear wasteland the usual methods of punishment uh, don't exist what are you going to take them to court well what court are you going to find them well they don't have any money and even if they did it's meaningless now are you going to throw them in jail then well they'd probably love that in jail you get a bed meals and there are nice thick sturdy walls to keep the fallout away so jail's no longer a deterrent, so how do you force someone to work? Well, if you're the government, or what's left of the government, it's actually quite easy, because after the bomb drops, if all your careful plans have worked out, you'll be in sole charge of the food supply. You'll have hoarded and stockpiled, and acquired tons of bags, sacks, tins and boxes, all stored in protected warehouses across the country. And you can send the boys in to requisition anything still lying around in shops and storerooms. You control the food, and that gives you almost total power. and there'd be plenty of jobs to be done after the bomb drop. You'd need workers to scrape the bodies off the streets, clear the rubble, dig trenches for sewage, repair buildings, demolish other buildings, erect hospital tents, bury irradiated cattle on the farms. In an ordinary disaster, you might bring in the army, but there's a war on, so they're otherwise engaged. You might get the police involved, but... They've got their hands full dealing with a ruined society about to tip into anarchy. You can't recruit cleaning companies or construction companies or demolition crews. For a start, you don't know their phone numbers. There's no internet and the yellow pages have burned. So there's no option but to haul in the survivors and set them to work, whether they like it or not. A paper from the National Archives from May 1953 talks about the tasks for which we would need enforced labour and it divides them into several categories. The first one is tasks requiring to be done before or immediately on the outbreak of war. These are pitching tents to increase the capacity of emergency hospitals and erecting dams for water supplies for firefighters. Let me just remind you, one of my previous podcasts dealt with um, emergency hospitals And of course, we know that the NHS would be completely overwhelmed in any kind of nuclear war. The BMA confirmed that. They said that one atom bomb would overwhelm the NHS, let alone a whole nuclear war. Nonetheless, there were plans to spring up emergency hospitals in the grounds of current hospitals, those which hadn't been bombed, of course, or in other buildings which could hold a large capacity of people, such as hotels, um, youth hostels and schools. I think I quoted from some papers I found from Aberdeen Council. They'd sent a worker out to scout out locations and make up a nice quiet list of buildings that they could grab or requisition, which is the proper word, as emergency hospital space. And these included nightclubs and ballrooms. And uh, I think there were one or two restaurants or cafes in there as well. I suppose shove all the tables and chairs aside, throw some stretchers in instead. The second category is tasks after the bomb has dropped. And these are divided into urgent work, important work and less important work. The urgent tasks are debris clearance, emergency feeding, stretcher bearing and disposal of the dead. Important work, which will continue over a long period is or includes bomb disposal, demolition and emergency repairs to buildings, Repairing or replacing gas and water mains and sewage and drainage channels and other repairs, e.g. to breached river or canal banks. And the other category, less important work, includes, for example, burial of the carcasses of farm animals. Of course, that's not just um, a cosmetic thing. Um, After the bomb, farms would be of supreme importance because, of course, you can't any longer, if it's been in full nuclear war, you can't any longer import food with ease. Uh, Your ports will probably be damaged. Your trading partners might not be in any position to send you any food. So, Britain may have to be reliant completely on what it can grow from its farms. So, yes, you need to immediately make sure they are as usable as possible. I suppose the first step in that is burying all the radioactive carcasses. Mm. We are reminded that this document is from the 50s. As I've said in previous podcasts um, in the 50s we hadn't yet grasped how horrific nuclear war could be because the hydrogen bomb came along later. The hydrogen bomb of course is a gazillion times more powerful than the atomic bomb and so in the early 50s a lot of plans can be forgiven for being a bit naive because the planners hadn't yet really grasped exactly what a nuclear war would be or could be. So this one from the 50s is still definitely a bit bit naive. It's definitely stuck in the atomic age, 1953. Britain didn't even have the hydrogen bomb at this point. And we can see their naivety. It's almost cute. When they talk about about, uh, enforced labour, they say that there might not even be a need to force lots of people to take on these tasks because, quote, probably many people will be thrown out of work by atom bombs. And this will be the best way to turn their labour to good use. So they talk here about um, finding people through the the employment exchanges, which I assume is an old word for the job centre. So um, A lot of people thrown out of work by atom bombs and having to go to the job centre saying, you know, bloody atom bomb, I've been sacked because of the atom bomb. Got any jobs going? And they say, yeah, yeah, we need a lot of people to pick up some corpses. Sign here, please. So yes, that's quite naive, but It is from the atomic era, not the thermonuclear era yet. So it is possible to think of job centres still running and people unemployed because of that bloody atom bomb. We can also therefore imagine people um, having to brush up their CVs. Why did you leave your last employment? Cause of uh, termination? Atom bomb. Atomic war. I suppose it beats saying I was caught stealing post-it notes. Before we go on to look at how the authorities would summon their forced labourers, let me remind you that up until 1968, Britain had a civil defence force uh, filled with uh, volunteers who were trained in all aspects of civil defence, rescue, welfare, etc. But even then, they wouldn't be sufficient in a nuclear war. They would always have had to be supplemented with some ordinary survivors. And then, of course, after 1968, we had no civil defence force at all. So how would the authorities round up the labourers? Two options were proposed in this paper. One was to use a regulation which was in place, although never used in the Second World War. This regulation allowed non-essential workers to be summoned to complete tasks which were seen as essential to the defence of the nation when invasion threatened. The regulations would see the authorities Acquire people at their places of work. That was seen as the most effective use of resources, you know, rather than going round to people's houses or nabbing them in the street. So they would get you at work, and it says, quote, factory labour being the most likely material. Now, depending on your politics, that's either exploitation of the working class or it's purely practical, as factory labour is manual labour. And so the workers there are likely to be fit and strong. The second option is, quote, the muster of all able-bodied males. This option uh, relied upon a lot of complicated arrangements. You would have had to previously have drawn up lists where local men who were not otherwise committed to civil defence or home guard work for example would be listed and so could be summoned at any point day or night. The paper says that option A, just grabbing people at the factory, is favoured as being most quick and easy but the paper admits that option may cause resentment people might say you know why has our factory been chosen and not the other one round the corner or they could say why is it the working class blokes are being roped into this and not the toffs Option B at least um, omits any sense of unfairness between working and middle and upper class because Option B lists all able-bodied men who are not otherwise committed to civil defence work. And I'll quote from the document here when they were agonising over which method would be best. The conception that in the face of a major disaster all able-bodied citizens have an obligation to come to the succour of their neighbours is far more palatable and in keeping with national traditions, than that a random selection of citizens should be unwillingly impressed by arbitrary methods. That's referring to them, of course, turning up at the factory to grab all the working class men. on the other hand, the registration, necessarily in advance of war, of all able-bodied males, with the numerous attendant difficulties of identification, the tracing of defaulters, and individual exemptions, whether on account of ill health or infirmity, essential employment or conscientious scruples would be a most formidable undertaking, even if it were linked to a general system of registration. Moreover, in the conditions of congestion and confusion likely to prevail after a heavy attack, a general muster might be most difficult to accomplish, and there would likely also be considerable difficulty in tracing the and subsequently penalising those who did not turn up. So as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, if you say no to the forced labour, how do they punish you? So two options there. One involves a bit of possible resentment, but the other is very, very unwieldy and involves a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of previous uh, planning. Whoever would have thought that forcing people to collect bodies would be difficult? Now we turn to an interesting part of the discussion. We've talked about the labour aspect, now let's look at the forced aspect. We know what the men would be required to do, but how do you force them to do it? Again, the document does consider that. Under the nice polite heading, difficulties of compulsion, it says, quote, there are likely to be more serious difficulties in maintaining control of it, it being the labour force, in the field, If the tasks set it are exceptionally dangerous, arduous or repugnant, and particularly so if they appear to have little or no connection with life-saving. Now, it's hard to imagine any tasks in a country devastated by nuclear war which would not be, quote, exceptionally dangerous, arduous or repugnant. You know, unless one aspect of forced labour is, uh, oh, we need lots of uh, blankets to be crocheted, please. And to make them nice and cheering, could you perhaps sew some ducklings onto the front? Unless we're calling for that, then surely all the tasks are going to be dangerous, arduous or repugnant. But the authorities did realise that there's a difference in whether your tasks are directly connected to life-saving. So they say that they might not have a lot of difficulty in compelling people to do stretcher bearing. Quote, a task which is directly life-saving is not unduly repugnant, and, though risky and arduous, should not be exceptionally so. But then, of course, at the opposite end of the spectrum, when we're talking about something which is repugnant, of course, we talk about collecting corpses. Here's what the paper has to say on that. Quote, At the opposite extreme is compulsion for disposal of the dead. This task has little obvious connection with life-saving, and is so inordinately repugnant that after the Hamburg raids, the Germans were forced to employ upon it concentration camp labour reinforced by military and SS units. The Home Office report on the raids, published January 1946, states that, "...the mental and physical strain on the men employed was quite exceptionally severe, especially in view of the indescribable condition of many of the bodies." Now, how do you punish those men who refuse to partake of these repugnant tasks? The paper admits that public opinion would not support eh, harsh penalties being dished out to men who refuse to do something which, to be blunt, has no effect on life-saving. These poor people are already dead, of course. And so the Home Office assessed that public opinion will very quickly turn against the government – if we inflict harsh penalties on those men who say they can or won't do such a horrible job. But the rebuttal to that argument is, quote, after an atom bomb attack, the public will have so much hardship to endure that they'll be prepared to stand extreme measures and to tolerate a certain degree of unfairness for a short time. So I suppose it's like in for a penny, in for a pound. You've seen a lot of horror. What difference does another little bit make. There was also a more practical and uh, fair solution offered to avoid the prospect of men saying I refuse to work on disposal of the dead crews. What you could do instead would be to have crews who were spread across various tasks. So a man might be doing maybe a morning on disposal of the dead and then an afternoon doing something perhaps more pleasant such as dealing with emergency feeding. So no one is going to be committed 100% to the absolutely hideous, awful tasks. The whole thing will be a jumble. You'll turn it up on the day and you'll be given a timetable of horror, I suppose. Some horrors more horrific than others. The document also looks at alternatives to forced labour. They were saying that forced labour might be a last resort. Perhaps we might be able to get workers or labourers from amongst For example, convicts or perhaps prisoners of war. And they could then be supplemented with a little bit of forced labour. But again, there were arguments against that as well. They were saying um, disposal of the dead, for example, is going to be horrific already. It's going to be even more horrific for the forced labourers, you know, ordinary, decent blokes, if they're forced to do it alongside murderers and rapists. So that almost makes a Horrible situation, even worse. Well then, an alternative is to try and get some soldiers to do it and supplement them with ordinary people. And if those ordinary people don't want to do it, they could be offered um, a nice tidy sum of money. As they say in the document, the offer of exceptional financial inducements. Now I know we'd said at the beginning of the podcast that money would be meaningless after the nuclear war, But remember, this is the early 50s when they're thinking of atomic war, limited atomic war. There will still be a society, just a very horribly battered one. So in this context, money would still be obvious. So they're saying, get the soldiers to do it, but throw in some ordinary blokes who might be reluctant, but you can beef up their enthusiasm with uh, some money. But then again, that, that was soon dropped because the argument was, soldiers are... Not going to be happy doing corpse disposal. No one would be. The soldiers particularly won't be happy about it if they're doing it alongside ordinary blokes who are being paid a nice juicy sum of money, far greater than their pay as soldiers. So you can't win, can you? The only solution here is that we all roll up our sleeves and decide to get the job done in the interests of the rebuilding society And we're all selfless and decent and do it without complaint. Yeah, that's going to happen. Before I go this week, let me thank all my patrons who support the podcast on Patreon. My podcast missed a few weeks because basically my life has been chaos recently. Um, If I told you all the things that have been happening, you wouldn't believe me. (laughs) But um, my patrons have stayed loyal to me, stuck by me, giving me some of their hard-earned cash every month to support the podcast. I really appreciate it. So let me say thank you to Andrew Key, Angus McClellan, Ben Capper, Brian Outlaw, Claire Brennan, Colin McGee, Damien Ryan, Douglas Greenshields, Ewan McLeod, Gordy McNair, Jonathan Abelins, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Peter Lee, Peter Mars, Phil Catling, Sarah Williams, Sean Judge, Sean Milson, Simon Allison, Steve Sace, Wynne Grant. Thank you everyone for supporting the podcast. If you want to jump in and support it, you can pay whatever you like per month towards it. Uh, Go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. You can choose to pay whatever you want and there are wee rewards um, attached to each level. Or you can pay a one-off donation to the podcast through PayPal. Just go to paypal.me forward slash Atomic Hobo. Uh, one of the Patreon awards gets you access to a closed Facebook group called Atomic Hobos, where I post um, archives, pictures of archives that I've got here. So I'm going to go on there just now and post some of the documents here that we've discussed, plus some others, and we'll have a little discussion on there about this topic. It's been surprisingly um, good fun. This one, I don't know. I found this one quite entertaining. Sometimes I finish these podcasts feeling very downcast <laughs> because the topic is so grim, but. Um, there's been room for some dark humour I think in this topic I hope you agree, I hope you've enjoyed it if you want to find me online to ask any questions about the podcast I'm on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell you can find my website at juliemcdowell.com or there's a Facebook page devoted to all my nuclear research and chit chat which is called Nuclear Britain so that's us for this week I want to thank you all for listening and I'll be back next Sunday with some more bye for now